Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. I want to give a warm welcome to all new subscribers. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not yet subscribed to this podcast and you keep finding yourself coming back, please hit the subscribe button and then hit the like button. It lets me know that you enjoy what you're hearing. And with that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, multiple sources were used for this episode, and I'll have the links to all of them within the show notes. This week and the next, I will be covering what has become the very controversial case of Darlie Routier. The simple version is that she is a mother who, in 1996, resided in Rowlett, Texas, an affluent Dallas suburb, and whose two young boys, Devin, aged six, and Damon, aged five, were murdered inside their home. And Darley herself sustained wounds to her neck, her shoulder, and her forearm. Now this all occurred while her husband, Darren, and their eight-month-old child were asleep upstairs. Now, eventually, Darley Routier will be charged, tried, and sentenced to death for this crime. But how did this happen? Well, as you might imagine, the actual version is much, much more complicated than this simple overview. Uh, If you scour the internet, you're going to find plenty of websites that proclaim her innocence and all of the information is laid out. On the flip side, there are plenty of other websites that believe she is guilty. And again, all of this evidence is laid out. It's an incredibly complicated case filled with missteps, uh, transcript mistakes, and an abundance, an abundance of circumstantial evidence. Now, the only information that's available that actually lays out the actual quote unquote facts in this case are the trial transcripts, the police records, and the autopsy reports. Now, all of these thankfully are online and they're easily accessible. Uh, One website in particular has a vast array of images and content. So if you're interested, you can visit darlyfacts.com to go through them all. And it's D-A-R-L-I-E-F-A-C-T-S.com. Now, as far as the transcripts go, the trial went on for over three weeks and there are hundreds of pages of transcripts. I'm still debating just collecting them all and doing a multi-part series where you too can listen to what was laid out in the trial. If I do decide to do that, I will definitely let you know. So now that I've covered all of the bare bones of the information, let's get into some of the details. Now, the very first thing that I want to do is to play you the 911 call because this is where it all started. Before I play this call, 
I want to forewarn you that this is very difficult to listen to and can be very unnerving and even upsetting. Now, some pieces of it are hard to understand. So once it's finished, I'll fill in some of the blanks. So with that said, here is Darlie's actual 911 call. It goes on for just over five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> 
That is really, really difficult to listen to. Now, as I mentioned, while some of it is hard to understand, a transcript was made of the call, and this transcript was done after the state, quote, enhanced the recording. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I do want to point out a few pieces of information that will be important later on especially when it comes to the arrest, the arrest warrant and the trial itself. So at one second into the call, one second and 19 milliseconds, we'll just stick with the seconds. Darley says, somebody came here. They broke in. At five seconds, she says, they just stabbed me and my children. At 29 seconds, you hear Darley say, oh my God, my babies are dying. And then at 30 seconds, you hear her husband, Darren, but you can't make out what he's saying, but he's there. At 34 seconds, there's another background voice, which again is unintelligible. And then at 39 seconds, again, it's Darren, unintelligible. And then again, at 42 seconds, you hear Darren, again, unintelligible. At 55 seconds, you hear Darley saying, oh my God, what do we do? And at one minute and seven seconds into the call, you hear Darley say, Damon, hold on, honey. Damon is the younger of the two children. He is five years old. Again, right after this, you hear Darren. And then you hear the 911 operator go hysterical female on the phone. At 1 minute and 11 seconds, Darley says, I saw them, Darren. At 1.12, Darren says, oh my God, then it's unintelligible, came in here. At 1 minute and 18 seconds, Darley then says, didn't you get my address? Because she's frustrated. They, you know, nobody is showing up. At 1 minute and 24 seconds, Darley's like, Darren, I don't know who it was. And then a little later, Darley says, we've got to find out who it was. And again, a little later, you hear Darren, but you can't understand what he's saying. At one minute and 44 seconds, Darley is frantic. She's like, my babies are dead. And then she says something unintelligible. The operator then says, you're going to have to slow down, calm down and talk to me. Then Darley says, I'm talking to my babies. They're dying. 
A couple of seconds later, Darley says somebody came in while I was sleeping. Me and my little boys were sleeping downstairs. And then she says some man came in, stabbed my babies, stabbed me. I woke up. I was fighting. He ran out through the garage, threw the knife down. My babies are dying. They're dead. Oh, my God. At about two minutes into this, Darley's like, hold on, honey, hold on. So one of the children is still alive at this point. At about two and a half minutes, the operator says, who is there with you? And Darley's like, this is when she screams for Karen. And then you can't understand what she says after this. The operator's trying to get her attention. Ma'am. And Darley's like, what? She's like, is there anybody in the house besides you and your children? And she's like, no, my husband, he just ran downstairs. He's helping me, but they're dying. Oh my God, they're dead. And again, you hear Darren, but you can't understand what he's saying. Darley then says, I feel really bad. I think I'm dying. And then she becomes, you can tell she becomes very frustrated because there's still no ambulance. And it's like three minutes into the call. And Darley says, I just got to sit here forever. Oh my God. She again says, who would do this? Who would do this? And then Darren responds, but again, you can't understand what he's saying. At three minutes and 30 seconds, you hear a sound, which I couldn't quite pick up, but this was on the transcript of a dog barking. Now, I believe that this is when the first officer arrived at the scene, and, and I'll get to this a little bit later. At about four minutes, again, Darren uh, but you do, it says unintelligible, but he, you do hear the end of it, which says phone is right there. I'm not sure what he's talking about. And then Darley's like, y'all look out in the garage, look out in the garage. They left a knife laying on and then it kind of trails off. So at this point, we know that she's at least talking to one officer. Um, the operator then hears this and says, there's a knife, don't touch anything. And she's like, I already touched it and picked it up. So this is going to become very important um, when it comes to the arrest warrant. At four minutes and 18 seconds, the operator's like, okay, ma'am, listen, there's a police officer at your front door. Is your front door unlocked? Um, and then Darley's like, yes, ma'am, but where's the ambulance? Um, Darley's like, if they don't get here, they're going to be dead. She's like, my God, they're and then you can't hear what the rest of what she's saying in the transcripts in the uh, at the four minute and 32 second mark. It says it's a police officer that says something that goes, what about you? And then Darley again tries to repeat her address. She's so afraid that they're not going to get to their address. She's like, my God, hurry. At 4.42, you hear the police officer saying, nothing's gone, Mrs. Routier. At 4.50, you hear this police officer say something which is unintelligible and then says, the problem, Mrs. Routier. The operator then comes back and says, okay, listen, ma'am, need to, need to let the officers in the front door, okay? And Darley's like, what? And the operator says, ma'am. And she's like, what, what? So you need to let the police officers in the front door. Now, Darley is very understandably confused at this point because there's already an officer in the house at this point in time. And then it seems as if she is speaking to somebody else. And at first it's unintelligible and then says his knife was lying over there and I already picked it up. 
And then you hear the operator say, okay, it's all right. It's okay. And at 5.09, Darley says, God, I bet we could have gotten the prince baby. At 5.19, Darley is heard saying somebody who did it intentionally walked in here and did it, Darren. So obviously she's talking to her husband. At 5.23, she says there's nothing touched. And then the rest of the call and then they hang up. So all of this will become incredibly important a little bit later on. Now, Darley's mom, who's actually also named Darley, but she goes by Darley Key, found out what was happening at her daughter's house because of a neighbor of her daughter's had called her at three o'clock in the morning. Now, when Darley Key got there, she said that there were spotlights on the house. There was a crowd of people that had gathered out front. Um, Officers and paramedics were coming in and out of the house. And then a neighbor told Darley Key that the boys were dead and that Darley may be as well. Now, both Devin and Damon had suffered multiple severe stab wounds. Darley's throat had been cut and it came, the cut came within two millimeters of her carotid artery. Had the knife even nicked the artery, she would have bled out and she too would have died. Now, Devin, the older child, he died at the scene from multiple stab wounds. Damon, the five-year-old, he still had a pulse and he was taken by ambulance immediately to the hospital. He, unfortunately, he would end up passing away while on the way to the hospital. He too died of multiple stab wounds, but his were to his back. Now, before Darley went to the hospital. The police asked her for a description of this man that she saw. And she said that she couldn't see his face, but he was a white man in dark clothes, possibly wearing a dark baseball cap. Now, Darley too was taken by ambulance immediately. And shortly after she arrived at the hospital, she was actually taken in for emergency surgery at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. Darley survived her surgery, but then was placed in the ICU in stable but critical condition. Now, a hospital staff member recalls Darley screaming, who could do this? Who could do this? As she's brought into the hospital. Now, that night, investigators descended on the home to look for evidence of the intruder. So Darley goes into surgery. Her surgery takes about 90 minutes And when she wakes up, it's around 5.15 in the morning. She felt sick, and so the nurses gave her Demerol. Now, Demerol is an opioid painkiller. It has effects very similar to morphine. Less than an hour later, at 6.11 in the morning, detectives came to the hospital to ask if Darley felt like talking. And evidently, she said she did. Now, remember, she had just been given Demerol less than an hour earlier. Again, Darley described the same man. Now, the lead detective, uh, Patterson, asked Darley about a potential robbery. And she mentioned that she had rings and necklaces on the counter. She wore 10 rings, one for each finger, and had laid them out in the kitchen where they might still be found. The medical examiner then wanted to come by the hospital and take pictures of Darley's injuries 
and compare them to those of the boys. Now, the next day, newspapers all across Texas ran this story. And the following piece is from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, which ran on Friday, June 7th, 1996. And this is the day after the incident. And it says, Police Chief Randall Posey stated how bad of a scene it was and didn't, at the time, mention any possible murder weapons. But neighbors were quoted as saying that someone evidently moved through the neighborhood about the time of the attack because, quote, the dogs just went crazy, said a neighbor who lives across the alley from the Routier residence. Now, two days later, on the 9th of June, the El Paso Times ran an article that talked about how robbery didn't seem to be the main motive of the slayings. So far, there had been no arrests, but Rowlett Police Sergeant Dean Poos said, quote, all theories are on the table. No one has been ruled in or out as a suspect yet. We have kind of eliminated the robbery angle simply because there were some valuables and cash laying around the house or around the area that were untouched. He further said, something doesn't make sense about someone randomly popping into this house and doing this. It was not some crazed lunatic walking down the alley and making some left turn and attacking them. Who's did say a knife was found on the floor near the bodies and forensics experts were treating it as if it might be the murder weapon. Now, here's the thing. The knife was actually found lying on the kitchen island. Whether he purposefully said it was on the floor near the bodies to add some misdirection is unknown, or if they really did find the knife on the floor, as he had said. Now, the Galveston Daily News also ran an article on June 7th with the headline, quote, Police Search for Killer of Two Boys. In this article, police state that they had found an open window with a screen that appeared to have been slashed and that was used to enter the house. So at this point, there's relatively little information, at least from the police in regards to their investigation, which is understandable, right? I mean, the crime had just occurred and they had just begun to investigate. However, the information about the screen, that, that was true. So far, we now have two young boys who have lost their lives in one of the most horrific ways possible, and a mother who was in the hospital having just undergone surgery. Investigators didn't think that the scene looked right, and there didn't seem to be any motive. So this brings us to June 8th, 1996. Now, on this day, this is two days after this occurred, Darley is released from the hospital. Now, Darley's handwritten discharge paperwork, it's, it's a little difficult to read, but on June 8th at 9 a.m., it was noted that Darley had anxiety after reading an article in the newspaper, so she was given medication and a chaplain was paged. Later, and the, the time is hard to read, she had complained of pain and was given some medication. Now, Darley was discharged at two o'clock that afternoon, and the paperwork noted that Darley understood the discharge instructions. 
take-home medications were given to her and she was released from the hospital accompanied by an officer. That same day, both Darley and Darren go to the Rowlett Police Department to give their statements. Now, Darren's statement was taken at 4.45 p.m. and Darley's was taken at 4.49 p.m. Now, what I'm about to read you is the first statement made by Darley. Darren and Dana, my sister, came home from working at the shop. The boys were playing with the neighborhood kids outside. I was finishing up dinner. Damon came home and Devin called and I told him to be home soon because we were going to eat. Darren played with the baby, Drake, while Dana, with Dana, while I pulled everything together to eat. Devin came home and we all ate dinner together. After we ate, we cleaned all the plates. I was changing Drake while Darren put everything in some containers for leftovers. So let me add some context here and uh, forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But there are a lot of players involved in this and many of them, especially these family members, have names that start with the letter D. So Darren is Darley's husband. Dana is Darley's 16 year old sister. The shop is actually a company called Testanek that Darren and Darley started that makes circuit boards. Damon and Devin and Drake are all Darren and Darley's children. Damon is the middle child. He's five years old. Devin is the oldest child and he is six and Drake is the baby, which is eight months old. The information about, you know, how they had dinner and everything. So the information about food, this is also important and I will get to this later on. So let's continue with Darley's statement. We all talked a little about how happy we were that the shop had been so busy for the past three weeks and we hoped it would continue since work had been slow for a couple of months. Devin and Damon asked if they could play with one of their friends a little longer so we said okay. Darren, Dana, and I just sat around and watched a little TV. Later, I'm not sure of the exact time, I asked Darren to drive Dana, my sister, home because I wasn't feeling too well. While Darren was gone, the boys brought down their blankets and pillows and asked if they could watch TV. I said yes. They came downstairs and played on the floor in front of the TV with Drake while I made some popcorn. Now, some information that's missing here is when the boys actually came back home. So the last we knew... They had been given permission to go back outside and play after dinner, right? While Darren, Dana, and Darley all watched television. Now, she wasn't sure what time she asked her husband to take Dana home. And the next thing we know, the boys are coming downstairs with their pillows and their blankets. So uh, anyway, Darley continues. About 20 or 25 minutes later... Darren came in and sat down with us while we watched TV. Drake started to get fussy, so I made him a bottle. Soon after, the boys fell asleep. Darren took the baby upstairs and put him in his crib and came back downstairs. We talked about a few problems we were having with the car and the boat and had a few words between us. 
Since I had the baby, I have been having some depression. I told Darren I was depressed because I hadn't been able to take the boys anywhere because we only had one car. He told me he loved me and asked me if I wanted him to sleep downstairs with me because I wanted to stay up a little and watch TV. I told him no because I didn't think that he would be able to sleep on the couch and get any sleep. I had been sleeping on the couch the past week or so off and on because the baby slept in our room in the crib and when he moved, he woke me up. Darren and I laid together for a little while and then decided to go to sleep because he had to work the next day. This was around 1230 or one o'clock. I'm not sure. He kissed me and said he loved me and I told him I loved him and would see him in the morning. Now, first of all, all that she says here is that Darren came in. We don't know if this was from dropping off Dana or not. And she wasn't sure what time they had left. So I don't know how she was sure it was 20 to 25 minutes later. You know, maybe I'm overthinking this. She also said that, quote, they had a few words, but she doesn't explain what those words were. They had two vehicles, but Darren's had been in the shop for some time and they were down to just one vehicle. So I'm assuming here that when Darley said that she'd been depressed because she hadn't been able to take the boys anywhere because is because they only had one car, that this meant that the one working vehicle they did have was being used by Darren to go to the shop, which left Darley at home by herself with the kids. She then mentioned that she had been sleeping on the couch the past week or so off and on because the baby was sleeping in their room in his crib and when he moved, he woke her up. Now, this is important to remember because obviously Darley is a very light sleeper if something as small as a baby moving in a crib would wake her. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important to give a description of the layout of the home so that you can visualize it uh, because we're going to get into some pretty uh, heavy stuff here. The family room where Darley and the boys were sleeping was on the first floor. So if you were to, if you were to walk into the front door of the house, you would pass a living room on your left and there would be stairs on your right. If you continued to walk further into the house, the family room uh, where they were sleeping would then be off to your left and opposite this room to the right is the kitchen. Inside the family room, if you're turning and you're looking inside the family room where Darley and the boys were and you have your back to the kitchen, there is first a chair against the wall on the left. Then the fireplace is in the left corner of the room. To the right of the fireplace is the television. Now, if you continue to move your eyes to the right, there is a couch, a side table, and then another couch, which faces the television directly. And the back of this couch actually faces the kitchen. And a table sits behind this particular couch and this table will become also important. In the center of the room is a large glass coffee table with a planter on top of it or a large flower display. 
Darlie had been lying on the couch closest to the television, not the couch that sat directly in front of the television. Um, as Darlie laid on this couch, her head was closer to the television than towards the kitchen. Now, Devin, the older child, was found near Darlie on the floor nearest to Darlie's head. Damon, the younger child, was found by the other couch, the one whose back has the table behind it and faced the kitchen area. Now, Damon was actually laying on the floor closer to the entrance of the kitchen, just past this couch. If you then turned around to face the kitchen and walked a few steps inside, you would see a bathroom on your right. To your left would be the kitchen sink. In the middle of the kitchen is a large island. If you walked around on the left-hand side of the island, a stove would be on your left, and a little further down, also on the left, is the refrigerator. Just past the refrigerator and directly ahead of you is the utility room, and this is where the washer and dryer were located. As you walk into the utility room, there is a door which leads into the garage, and this is also on the left-hand side. So with all that being said, uh, to continue with Darlie's statement, Darlie continues. After a while, I started to get sleepy. The next thing I wake up and feel a pressure on me. I felt Damon press on my right shoulder and heard him cry. This made me really come awake and realized there was a man standing down at my feet, walking away from me. I walked after him and heard glass breaking. I got halfway through the kitchen and turned back around to run and turn on the light. I ran back towards the utility room and realized there was a big white-handled knife lying on the floor. It was then that I realized I had blood all over me, and I grabbed the knife thinking he was in the garage, so I thought he might still be there, and I yelled for Darren. Now, Damon is the five-year-old, and he, according to Darlie, is the one there pushing on her shoulder. Now, Damon is also the one who was later found on the floor closest to the kitchen. Darlie also said that the man was walking, not running, but walking as if he didn't have anything to worry about. So let's continue. I ran back through the kitchen and realized the entire living area had blood all over everything. I put the knife on the counter and ran into the entrance, turned on a light and started screaming for Darren. I think I screamed twice and he ran out of the bedroom with his jeans on and no glasses and was yelling, what is it? What is it? I remember saying, he cut them. He tried to kill me, my neck. He ran down the stairs and into the room where the boys were. I grabbed the phone and called 911. Darren started giving Devin CPR while I put a towel on my neck and a towel over Damon's back. I remember telling Damon to hang on. Mommy was there. I looked over at Darren and saw the glass table had been knocked halfway off and the flower arrangement had been knocked over. I then stood up and turned around and saw glass all over the kitchen floor. 
I tried to glance over to see if anything was out of place or if anything was missing. I took a few steps and opened the door and screamed for Karen. I was still on the phone with 911 and don't recall what all was said because everything was happening so fast. Now, when you heard the 911 call earlier, you heard her scream the name Karen. This is the moment that she screamed for her neighbor. Karen happens to be a nurse. So this part of the statement actually intrigues me. Why would Darren have his jeans on? He'd gone up to bed around one o'clock in the morning and the 911 call came in around 2.30 in the morning. So I, that's a little odd to me. Uh, Darley continued with her statement. I went back to Damon and by then he had stopped moving and the police walked through the door. The paramedics came and tried to work on the children. Darren was screaming, who did this, who did this? And I started asking if my babies were dead. Darren was crying and said yes. After that, I just remember screaming and showing Darren my neck. Darren took me out to the front of the house. And by then, Darren ran upstairs to make sure the baby was okay and then handed him to Karen, our neighbor. I remember them holding a towel on my neck and wrapping my arm. And then they put me in an ambulance. Darren got in, but they told him he needed to leave so they could take care of me. I remember we got to the hospital and then them telling me they were taking me to surgery. They took off my necklace and put me to sleep. I woke up and minutes later, the detectives were there making me all kinds of questions. So I want to add a little bit here about this. Um, the reason she mentioned something about the necklace is that, um, and this will come up later, in another episode but when whomever it was uh tried to cut her neck she had a, a thin gold necklace on and as the knife went into her neck the necklace went with it and as they tried to take the necklace out it was very painful this necklace had like two two nicks on it um and some people believe that had it not been for this necklace uh she wouldn't even be here today so let's continue. Darren's statement was taken that same day at the Rowlett Police Department. And here's what he had to say. We were watching TV in the living room, the family room, and we were watching, and this was illegible, they couldn't read it, some kind of movie on HBO. Uh, Baby Drake had fallen asleep about 10 or 10.30. I took him up to bed in parents' room, put blankets on him, and turned out lights. I went downstairs to talk to Darley. We talked about the boys not being able to start baseball yet because we were so busy with the baby right now. We talked about the business, bills, and how Darley was having a hard time with taking care of the babies today. Darley said... She wanted to sleep on the couch because she would sleep better because the baby would keep her awake. The boys were asleep with pillows and blankets on the floor. Devin was asleep face up in front of the TV and Damon was asleep between the couch and coffee table by the couch mom was. 
So I went upstairs to get her a blanket and pillow and came back downstairs to cover her up. We talked a little more about her going to Cancun with some friends across the street, and I gave her a kiss goodnight, told her to dream about me, and went upstairs around 1 a.m. So, Darren's statement also says that they were watching TV in the family room. He said that Drake, the baby, had fallen asleep. Now, this differs a little bit from Darlie's version, where she said that he had become fussy, and so she made him a bottle, and Darren then took him upstairs. So in all fairness, after Drake had his bottle, he may have fallen asleep, and that's when Darren took him upstairs. Darren also says that he came back downstairs, which again coincides with Darlie's statement. Now, Darlie gave a statement about their conversation as being about how depressed she had been feeling. Remember, she didn't, they had one car, she was uh, feeling depressed. Darren gave more details about their conversation. Now, to me, and this is just my opinion, the fact that Darren said that part of him and Darlie's conversation was that she was having a hard time caring for the babies all day, kind of sets the stage. I don't know if it was purposeful or not. Maybe this is just his recollection. She said she was frustrated and felt depressed because she couldn't go anywhere without a vehicle. So perhaps Darren's take on it was that she was just having a hard time dealing with the kids. So that could very well be. Darren also continued to say that Darlie wanted to sleep on the couch because the baby would keep her awake. Again, this is consistent with Darlie's statement. The boys were asleep with pillows and blankets on the floor. Uh, Devin, the older child, was asleep face up in front of the TV and Damon was asleep between the couch and the coffee table near where Darlie was. Yet, Damon, the younger of the two, was found past the couch whose back was facing the kitchen and partially in that path between the family room and the kitchen area. And remember that Darlie had stated that she awoke to Damon pushing on her shoulder and that's what woke her up. So the time frame as to when Darren went to bed, 1 a.m., this is consistent with what Darlie had said as well. So let's continue with Darren's statement. I went and turned on TV in our room and watched for 10 to 15 minutes and took my glasses off and turned the TV off. I could not go to sleep for a while, but finally I fell asleep. Unconsciously, I heard a noise and then Darlie screaming loud. She was yelling, Devin, Devin, oh my God, Devin. I woke up quickly and grabbed my glasses on the nightstand and ran downstairs as fast as I could. Going into the living room, I ran over to Devin laying on the floor where he was when I saw him last and kneeled down over him to see if he was hurt and then looked at the coffee table to see it tipped over on him. When I looked again at his chest, There were two holes in his chest with blood and muscle piecing out. I slapped his face to get him to say or to look at me. No response. I started CPR and when I blew into his mouth, air came out of his chest. 
I blew five or six times and held my hand over the holes on his chest. Then when that didn't work, I blew into one of the holes in his chest. I looked over at Darlie and she was on the phone calling 911. So here, Darren says that he went uh, up to his room where the baby was and turned on the TV in their room and watched for about 10 to 15 minutes. Now, wouldn't this have woken up the baby? He then says that he took his glasses off and turned the TV off. He couldn't go to sleep for a while, but he doesn't say how long, but evidently he did fall asleep, according to him. He then said he woke up unconsciously to a noise and then heard Darlie screaming, yelling, Devin, Devin. Darren said he woke up quickly and grabbed his glasses and ran downstairs as fast as he could. Now, nowhere in his statement does he mention putting on jeans. Did he fall asleep with them on? He wasn't so exhausted that he couldn't watch television for a few minutes, so why not take off his jeans and climb into bed? Also, Darley said he did not have his glasses on, yet he said that he grabbed them. However, you know, just because he grabbed them doesn't mean he actually put them on, but then why grab them at all? He said he ran into the family room and ran over to Devin laying on the floor, quote, where he was when I saw him last. Now, I'm not sure why he felt it necessary to add that last part. Why didn't he just say he ran over to Devin? Further, Darren should have had blood smears all over his face from trying to perform CPR on Devin's chest. Now, it's unknown. I don't know if photos were taken of Darren and Darley on the night of the crime, but I would be very curious to see them uh, if they were. So Darren continued. I ran over to Damon laying on the floor in hallway between wall and side of couch. He had no pulse, but I could not see any injuries. Police came in and I told them that my babies were stabbed and she told them that he went out of the garage. I ran upstairs to put my pants on. I looked over and Drake was crying and I felt, and that was illegible, he was okay. I noticed my wallet left on the floor and all I could think to do was to go to Karen's house for help. I needed someone to help. This was illegible and illegible the paramedics when they arrived. I went downstairs, ran out of the house, and ran across the street to Karen and Terry door. I banged five to six times as hard as I could until Terry comes to the door first. And when I told them that Devin and Damon were stabbed, they were in shock and ran over with me to the house. And that was when they were putting Damon on a stretcher. I knew that Devin was dead before I ran across street and Damon had no pulse, but the paramedic carried him out in a blanket out the front door. So in his own statement, Darren says that he ran over to Damon and Damon had no pulse, but he couldn't see any injuries. So why then did he tell the police that his babies, plural, were stabbed? It was apparent what Devin's, Devin's injuries were, uh, but Damon's were on his back. And according to Darren, he couldn't see any injuries to Damon. So how did he know that Damon had been stabbed? 
Now, to give him the benefit of the doubt, this statement was written two days later after the crime had occurred. And by this time, he would have been informed that both of the children had been stabbed to death. So maybe that information kind of worked its way into his statement. Darren then said this was when he went upstairs to put his pants on and noticed that Drake was crying, but he felt that Drake was okay. Yet Darley said that he had initially come down with his pants on, but no glasses. So I'm trying to picture this. You have just seen perhaps the most horrific scene of your life. Your two children are dead and dying. Your wife has had her throat slashed. And instead of staying with them, you think to go and put your pants on. Now, again, this is totally my opinion here, because it may be that he first thought of Drake and then went upstairs to grab the baby. And as a second thought, thought, well, geez, maybe I should put some pants on. But what got me was that he said he, quote, felt like Drake was okay. I mean, wouldn't you be picking that baby up and frantically checking him all over to ensure that he was okay? Darren also continues. He says that he noticed his wallet was left on the floor and all he could think to do was to go to Karen's house for help. What a strange thing to notice and a strange thing to say. In such a time of crisis, are you really going to remember your wallet on the floor? And how does noticing your wallet relate to, hey, I need to go get Karen? He said he ran out of the house and across the street to Karen's door where he banged five to six times as hard as he could. Her husband answered and Darren told him that Devin and Damon were stabbed. Again, he says that the children were stabbed, but he himself said he couldn't see any injuries on Damon. So how did he know that he was stabbed? Um, Karen and her husband then ran over with Darren to Darren's house. And this is when they were putting Damon on the stretcher. Now, remember, Damon was the younger of the two, the same child that Darren had said had no pulse and no apparent injuries. Yet, obviously, the paramedics felt differently. Otherwise, they wouldn't have loaded Damon into the ambulance. He further says that he knew Devin, the six-year-old, was dead before he ran across the street and that Damon had no pulse, but that the paramedic carried him out in a blanket out the front door. Now, just moments before, he said that they were putting Damon on a stretcher. So, and, and maybe I'm just picking this apart too much. I don't know, but this is just my opinion. So Darren continues. I ran out yelling that we have to find out who did this. And Karen told me that Darley was cut too. I never knew that she was hurt, yet she had blood all over from the neck down to the bottom of her nightshirt. She was standing in the doorway with the paramedics, said she needed to go to the hospital. So we helped her onto the stretcher and she said, Darren, you have to promise me we will find this man. He killed our babies. I walked back into house, pushed my way through the police and saw the knife on the bar in kitchen with blood all over it. Then there's something illegible went to garage, again, illegible, 
to look at the window that the police had said he entered, and I went out of the house and walked across the street, and neighbors were there to comfort me and ask me about what happened. I sat for a minute on a curb and walked over to the ambulance where Damon was and asked paramedic was he alive, and they said no. I was in shock. Karen told me to go with Darley in the ambulance, so I got in and they threw me out and said that they needed to work. So then they asked me questions, and he's referring here to the uh, fire department. They needed his social security number, his full name, his address, and so forth. And then he asked what hospital, and no one knew. So found out where Darley went, Baylor, Dallas, and drove over to the hospital. At hospital, I was questioned by Detective Frosch for hours. So Darren then said that he he ran out yelling, we have to find who did this. And I don't know where he ran out. I'm assuming he ran out of his house because this is there's a missing piece of information in his statement between when he goes to Karen's and then arrives back home. The only reason I believe that he actually just ran out of his house is that later Darren says that Karen told him that Darley had been cut too. And Karen then at this point would have been within their house and have seen, would have seen Darley. He didn't realize it yet. Uh, she had blood all over her from the neck down to the bottom of her nightshirt. Now, Darren said the paramedics said she needed to go to the hospital. So, quote, we helped her onto the stretcher. Now, I'm not sure who we is. Um, if the paramedics said she had to go to the hospital, wouldn't they have just handled it from there and on their own? Uh, according to Darren, Darley said, Darren, you have to promise me we will find this man. He killed our babies. He then said that he walked back into the house, pushed his way through the police and saw the knife on the bar in the kitchen with blood all over it. He then went to the garage to look at the window. The police said he had entered. And then I went out of the house and across the street and neighbors were there to comfort me and ask me about what happened. Now, when all of this chaos, the police had already determined and told Darren where the intruder had entered. Really? Darren then said that he sat on a curb and then walked over to the ambulance where Damon was and asked the paramedic if he was still alive. And they said no. Now, it's my understanding, and I could be very wrong, that Damon died on the way to the hospital. The paramedics at this point in time would not have been able to tell Darren this information unless Darren was in the ambulance with him, which he was not. So according to Darren, Karen then told him to go with Darley into the ambulance and he did get in, but they quote unquote threw him out and said they needed to work. The fire department then asked him questions about his personal information. And when he found out which hospital Darley was headed to, he drove to that hospital. When he got there, he was questioned by Detective Frosch, quote unquote, for hours. So my question is, why is his first thought his wife? And I don't mean to sound callous, but, you know, here they have like a, a small five-year-old boy. Why wouldn't you want to find out where your dying child was heading to and go there first? It is true 
that while at the hospital, Darren was questioned by the police. And according to him, they took him to a room and had him strip, completely strip, so they could photograph him for any wounds. They also took all of his clothes and they provided him with clothing from the hospital to wear. So since Darley, Darren, and the baby Drake, and remember all of this, these are strictly from their statements after Darley has now been released from the hospital. And so they've gone in, they've given their statements, and it's now later that night. And since Darley, Darren, and the baby Drake couldn't go home, obviously, after Darley was released, uh, they stayed with Darley's mom, Darley Key. Now, Darley didn't want to sleep in any rooms that had windows. She wanted to be accompanied if she had to use the restroom. She just flat out did not want to be alone. The day of the funeral, they could barely keep Darley from falling down. She was so distraught. Now, four days after the boy's funeral on June 14th of 1996 and eight days after the boys were killed, Darley, Darren, and the family went to the boys' gravesite to celebrate Devin's seventh birthday. Now, this was supposed to have been on June 8th. So Darley's sister, Dana, had purchased and brought dozens of balloons, which decorated the grave. And she also had purchased a bunch of silly string for the whole family to spray because it was one of the favorite things that the boys liked to do. A member of the press had been invited to the gravesite, and it was later found out that it was Darley's mother, Darley Key, who had invited them. She had a relationship with a local reporter and confirmed that there would be a graveside ceremony and invited him to be there. When he respectfully asked if he could take photos, Darley Key said it was okay to bring along a cameraman. So, of course, this this was a big break for this young reporter. He filmed them celebrating Devin's birthday, spraying Silly String, and the video showed Darley smiling and chewing gum. Now, when the celebration was over, both Darren and Darley were interviewed. They both praised the work the police were doing and had said that they had hoped that someone had stolen something from the home because at least that would help explain things a little bit. Now, this video of the birthday celebration was played not only on this young reporter's local station, but got picked up by nearly every station in the Texas area. It wasn't a good look for Darley. Uh, Just days after her boys had been brutally murdered in their home, here's footage of a smiling Darley spraying silly string on their gravesite. Many people were shocked to see this footage run on their nightly news. Um, To them, this was not a woman who was grieving. This was a woman who was happy her children were gone. What they didn't know and what would later be discovered is that the local police department had a hidden long-range camera at the gravesite and had planted a microphone in a nearby urn to hopefully pick up someone confessing to the murders of the boys. Now, they didn't catch a confession, 
But what they did catch was the family gathering first, the one prior to the birthday celebration. And this caught them having a prayer service with a priest holding the ceremony. It was a very somber occasion. But of course, this never made it to the news. The only thing that made it to the news was the birthday party celebration. So on June 18th of 1996, this is 12 days after the crime, the police asked Darren and Darley to please come back to the police station to answer some more questions. So when they got there, they separated them and they took Darren back to the house. They said that they wanted him to do another walkthrough. Now, according to Darren, along the way to back to the house, the officers picked up some cigars and Darren thought that they must be celebrating the fact that they caught somebody. Well, while they have Darren at the house, they arrest Darley back at the police station. They said that she had inconsistencies in her story and that the man she said came into their home never existed. Further, they believe that her wounds were self-inflicted. So what follows are portions, um, a lot of big portions, of the arrest warrant for Darley. And so this is how it reads. Jimmy Patterson wrote the arrest warrant, and after he gives his credentials, he states that he has good reason and does believe that on or about the 6th day of June 1996, one Darley Lynn Routier, a white female, 26, did then and there in the city of Relit, Dallas County, Texas, commit the offense of capital murder, a violation of Section 19.03 of the Texas Penal Code, a capital felony. He further states on June 6th at approximately 2.31 a.m., a call was made by Darley Routier to 911 at the Rowlett Police Department that, quote, they, unquote, had just broken in and, quote, stabbed me and my children at her home. Rowlett Police Officer D. Waddell arrived at the location first. Now, Darley remained on the phone with 911 dispatcher until officers arrived for over five minutes. I'm actually reading this verbatim, so if it sounds a little choppy, uh, that's why this is exactly how it's written. I have reviewed the 911 tape and talked to Waddell and the other officers in paramedics at the scene about what they saw and learned. I arrived at the scene about one hour after the call came in. From my review of the 911 tape and my discussions with Darling, her husband Darren, Routier, and other officers, I know the following. Officers and paramedics arriving at the scene found Darley Routier, Darren Routier, and their sons Devin Routier, six years old, and Damon Routier, five years old, in the downstairs portion of the house in the rear living area on the southwest corner of the house. Devin had been stabbed multiple times, including major penetrating wounds to his chest. Darley had a slashing wound to her neck, a minor stab wound to her left shoulder, minor cuts to the creases of the last knuckles on the palm side of her left fingers, 
a minor cut or scrape on the left side of her chin, and a laceration to the top of her right forearm. When the 911 call began, Darley referred to the assailant as quote-unquote they, although she told Sergeant Walling, the second officer at the scene, that the assailant was a single white male, possibly wearing a dark-colored ball cap, blue jeans, and a black shirt. Darley told me later, shortly after 6 a.m. that morning, that the assailant was one male, probably white, with shoulder-length hair, a black baseball cap with a bill-facing front, a pullover, black, short-sleeved t-shirt, blue jeans. Darley told the 911 dispatcher that, quote, my little boy's dying, and later, quote, my babies are dying, despite the fact that she knew that one or both of the boys were still alive. Waddell has told me that Darling never made attempts to stop their bleeding, touch them, or render other first aid. Before going to the garage, Waddell told her twice to take the rag she was holding and apply pressure to the wounds of the younger child who had been stabbed in the back, but she never went to the child or attempted to help him. Although she said in a later written statement that she put a towel on his back before police arrived. Waddell remarked that Darley was instead preoccupied with the minor wound on her neck and she kept the rag pressed to it. Darling told Waddell upon his arrival that the assailant had gone out the utility room and into the garage and out of the house through the garage. Waddell went to the utility room and garage to look for the assailant. He saw no one in the garage. While Waddell and Walling were in the garage, they saw that one of the garage windows leading into the backyard of the house was open and the screen was split. Darley initially told officers at the scene and me at the hospital that same morning that she was asleep in the family room on the couch with its parallel to the west wall of the house and woke to find the assailant standing over her with the knife in his hand. She had been struggled with him and then he walked away through the kitchen into the utility room and out of the house through the garage which adjoined the utility room. In this story, Darley told us that she saw the assailant drop the knife in the utility room. Darley told officers at the scene that she realized she had been stabbed while she was on the couch. She told me that she realized she had been stabbed only after she had found the knife. When she gave me a written statement on June 8th, two days later, she changed her story to say that she woke with Damon, the younger child, pressing on her shoulder and that the assailant was, quote, standing down by her feet at the end of the couch, walking away, unquote, from her. In the written statement, Darling said that she, quote, walked after him and heard glass breaking, unquote. In the written statement, Darley did not mention the knife until she says, quote, realized there was a big white-handled knife laying on the floor of the utility room, unquote, when she followed the assailant there from the kitchen. In the written statement, Darley said she picked up the knife, quote, thinking he was in the garage. When Darley later drew a diagram of the house for me, 
which is attached to this affidavit as Exhibit A, she told me the assailant, quote, ran away, unquote, and that she, quote, ran, unquote, behind him in the kitchen. At that time, Darling told me she didn't see the knife on the utility room floor until she went back to the kitchen doorway near the family room to turn on the lights, and then she saw the knife by looking over the kitchen island toward the utility room floor. When I examined the scene after she told me this version of her story, I was unable to see the utility room floor from the vicinity of the light switch by looking across and over the kitchen island because the island is too large and I am taller than Darling. During the 911 call, after about four minutes had passed and the first officer had apparently arrived, Darling said, quote, Look out in the garage. They left a light knife laying on the, and it trails off. The, the dispatcher told her, quote, don't touch anything, unquote, to which Darley replied, quote, I already touched it and picked it up. Darley later told the dispatcher again that she had touched the knife five minutes into the call while her dying children were still on the floor in front of her. And she said, quote, I wonder if we could have gotten the prince, maybe. During the 911 call, there is no mention of or sound from Darren, Darley's husband, until 43 seconds into the call, after which a male voice is first heard. Darley told the 911 dispatcher that, quote, my husband just ran downstairs, unquote, but she never asks him or mentions during the call her eight-month-old baby who Darling and Darren later told us was sleeping upstairs with Darren at the time of this offense. I know from talking to the officers involved and reviewing their reports that Rowlett patrol officers secured the crime scene and maintained it until crime scene physical evidence officers arrived at the scene within two or three hours of the 911 call. Although Darley has consistently said that the assistant, the assailant, excuse me, fled the house through the garage there was no blood found in the garage, on the window in the garage, or on the white wood fence or gate surrounding the backyard, even though the assailant would have had to leave the backyard over the fence or through the gate. The overhead garage door, the only way out of the garage besides the windows, was closed and latched from inside when police arrived, and Darley never told us that she heard that door open or close. The windowsills still had a layer of dust on them, which was undisturbed. Mulch on flower beds between the garage and the backyard gate was undisturbed in the morning hours after the offense when Cron examined it. Although Darley told us that she followed the assailant through the kitchen and heard him breaking glass ahead of her, the only broken glass found in or around the house was a wine glass, which was broken in the kitchen. Bloody footprints were found on the kitchen floor and were photographed by physical evidence investigators at the scene. These footprints were all made by a single size set of bare feet. Darley was barefoot when officers arrived at the scene. The broken wine glass in the kitchen floor was found lying on top of one of the bloody footprints. The footprint appeared to have been left on the floor before the glass was broken on top of it. We examined Darley's feet and took footprints with her consent on June 10th. 
I have seen the footprints in the kitchen floor and on the footprints taken from Darlie and her husband, Darren. And the footprints on the floor appeared to me to be the same size as Darlie's prints. Although the broken glass was near and on top of the prints on the floor, Darlie had not injuries to the bottom of her feet four days after the offense. Darren also had no injuries to his feet and his feet are much larger than Darlie's. All of the bloody footprints in the kitchen floor lead from the kitchen sink area back to the family room where the second offense occur. There are no bloody footprints leading into the utility room where Darlie says she followed the assailant. There was also an upright vacuum cleaner overturned in the kitchen with blood on its handle. The vacuum would have appeared to have been overturned in a struggle or by accident, except that it was overturned on top of blood drops and bloody bare footprints leading back into the family room. Although Darling has at times told us that she found the knife on the utility room floor. Cron has examined the floor and told me that he has found no blood splatters or other marks consistent with the bloody murder weapon being dropped on that floor. Although Darley has never mentioned to us being near the kitchen sink, which is on the west wall of the kitchen during or after the offense, the physical evidence investigators examined that area and determined that there had been a significant quantities of bloodshed or dripped immediately in front of the kitchen sink. Although attempts had been made to clean the countertop top in sink test with luminol revealed blood on the top of the counter in front of the sink. Neighbors, Cron, other officers, and I all examined the couch where Darley said she was sleeping when she was attacked. Although there are quantities of blood throughout the room and around the boys, there was no appreciable blood on the couch where Darley's head, neck, and shoulders were located at the time she says she was stabbed by her assailant. Cron's opinion from this blood evidence is that Darley self-inflicted her wounds while standing at the kitchen sink. The murder weapon, a wooden block knife holder from the kitchen and the cut screen and uncut screen from the garage windows, among other things, were seized at the scene by Rowlett officers and turned over to Charlie Lynch. Mr. Lynch performed tests on the undamaged screen taken from the garage and compared residue from that screen and residue found on one of the knives taken from the kitchen. And his expert opinion is that the garage screen found cut by Rowlett police and through which the assailant supposedly exited and or entered the house was cut from the outside of the house using a knife from Darley's kitchen which knife was recovered from the wood block container after the offense. Lynch also told me that the murder weapon matches the set contained in the wood block container taken from the kitchen and the murder weapon is consistent with the slot in that wooden block container from which one knife was missing when the block was seized by police. Although Darley initially told us that she, quote, struggled, unquote, with the assailant, Cron's expert opinion is at the blood splatters in the living room are inconsistent with the violent struggle. Although Darley at some points has told us that she chased her assailant through the kitchen, the blood splatters left in the kitchen 
lack the, quote, high velocity, unquote, spread pattern, which would be consistent with splatters left behind someone running through the area. Today, I spoke to Mike Basillo, an investigator with the Dallas DA's office, who spoke today to Dr. McLean of the Dallas County Medical Examiner's office. And Dr. McLean told Basillo, and he told me that Dr. McLean performed the autopsy on the older child, Devin, who McLean says sustained two incised wounds to the chest. The larger of the wounds, the top of which begin above the child's right nipple and which extended two inches in length in a downward direction, had a maximum depth of penetration of five inches exiting the right chest wall on the child's back. The wound penetrated the child's rib cage, breaking the child's ribs. At my request, Dr. Townsend Parchman of the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office examined Darley's injuries on June 6th, and she has told me that the wounds would possibly have been self-inflicted. Based on the above information, which I have received from investigating officers, my own investigation, I believe that the wounds inflicted upon Darley were of a completely different character and severity than those inflicted on her sons. None of her wounds were deep, penetrating wounds to vital areas of her body, such as those received by her sons. Based on these facts, I believe that someone from inside the house took a knife from the kitchen cut the garage window screen from outside the house prior to the offense and then replaced the knife in the kitchen block container. I further believe that Darley Routier's stories to roll it police are internally inconsistent and inconsistent with all the physical evidence at the scene. I further believe that her repeated statements to the 911 dispatcher about her fingerprints on the knife, her lack of concern and attempts to help her dying son and her lack of concern for her remaining infant's child who was upstairs during the offense and whose condition was apparently unknown to Darley during the call are indicative of her guilt and inconsistent with her story that she had awakened after the violent assault on her two older sons and after she had been wounded. I further believe that her story that she slept through the violent stabbings of her sons only a few feet away from her and through multiple cuts inflicted upon herself is incredible. Based upon the above facts, I believe that Darley Routier committed the capital murder of Damon Routier and Devin Routier in Dallas County, Texas, on or about June 6, 1996, signed Jimmy Patterson. So, yes, I know that was incredibly long, but... Uh, I did read it for verbatim. Um, it's hard to read, but uh, it gives you an idea as to what this is exactly. This is her arrest warrant. This is why they're arresting her. So first, let's let's talk about a few names mentioned here that haven't been introduced. Uh, the first is the writer of the arrest warrant, Jimmy Patterson. He was the lead detective in the case, and he would later take the fifth during his trial testimony. He mentions two officers who arrived at the scene, uh, David Waddell, that's D. Waddell, that he, how he refers to it, 
and James Walling. Now, David Waddell was a patrolman and he was the first officer on the scene. He testified at trial for the state. James Walling was a lieutenant and second officer on the scene and he also testified at trial for the state. James Cron, every time he refers to Cron, that would be James Cron. Uh, he is a retired, quote, crime scene analyst who was to claim on the morning of June 6, 1996, that the scene in the Routier home had been staged and that the person who had done the crimes was someone from within the home. Now, he too testified at trial for the state. Uh, Charlie Lynch at the time uh, was a forensic analyst and worked for Southwest Institute of Forensic Sciences in Dallas. He performed the tests on the undamaged screen taken from the garage and compared it to the residue found on one of the kitchen knives, which actually happened to be a bread knife. Uh, Mike Basillo is an investigator with the Dallas DA's office. Uh, Dr. McLean worked for the Dallas County Medical Examiner's office. Dr. Janice Townsend Parchman is a medical examiner for Dallas County who did the autopsy on Damon. She too testified at trial. Now, while the arrest warrant does sound damning, there are a few things that I want to point out. First, a piece of evidence that was was located 75 yards down the alley of the Routier home. And what this was is was an adult-sized athletic sock that had small blood particles from both Devin and Damon. This was never mentioned in the arrest warrant, but it will come up later on. Second, there is no mention of the fact that prior to the investigation, paramedics and two police officers, at least, were already inside the house. The paramedics' only concern were for those who were hurt, and rightly so. But anyone pushing their way into a crime scene inevitably will mess up evidence. For example, the glass on the kitchen floor. Part of the arrest warrant states that Darley's bloody footprints were found underneath the broken glass. Had she run into the kitchen toward the sink, she would have stepped on them and there would have been cuts on her feet. However, the officers and or the paramedics could very well have knocked some of these out of the way as they were rushing into the house, thus making the broken glass travel across the footprints that were already there. Uh, and just as a, a note, a rape kit was performed on Darley, and this did come back negative. Now, under Texas law, a double homicide qualifies as a capital offense, but, but so does a single murder of a child who is under six. Now, since Damon was five years old, the DA decided to only charge Darley with the murder of five-year-old Damon. The state sought the death penalty for her. Douglas Parks was Darley's initial defense attorney. He was a court-appointed attorney who had done a multitude of capital murder cases. He was given six months to prepare for Darley's trial. Parks also had two crime scene analysts that had come in to work with him, and these two were Terry Labor and Bart Epstein. Uh, forensically, 
they found that the evidence didn't point to Darley's guilt. And part of their job was to analyze the blood spatters and cast off information. Now, according to Parks, Cron, that retired crime scene investigator, uh, walked through the house for 20 to 30 minutes and determined within that time frame that it was an inside job. But remember, remember that sock down the alley? Cron didn't even know about it at this point. Still, he rendered his own verdict and said, hey, this was an inside, inside job, no doubt about it. Now, Darley Key, remember, this is Darley's mom, didn't want Darley to be represented by a court-appointed court attorney, so she set out to locate another one for her daughter, and she found one. And this new attorney was Douglas Mulder. He replaced Parks as lead defense attorney on October 21st of 1996. Now, this means that he had just over two months to prepare for Darley's trial. Now, it should be noted that Mulder refused to even accept Darley's case until he had visited her in person. And after he did, he was convinced that she was not guilty, and then he took the case. Now, Parks, Darley's original attorney, he sent over all of the information he had, including over 300 photos of the crime scene. So, I, so long. So, friends, this is where we are right now. Two young children were savagely murdered in their own home. Their mother had her throat cut, uh, which required surgery. After an initial investigation and a walkthrough by a crime scene analyst, it was determined within 20 to 30 minutes that this crime was an inside job. Someone inside that home had done it, according to him. The 911 call was analyzed and compared with both Darren's and Darley's written statements that they gave at the police station. The lead detective then determined, based on inconsistencies with Darley's statements, and that her injuries weren't consistent with those of the boys, that she was the one who had murdered her children. She was arrested and had a court-appointed attorney assigned to her, which her mother evidently didn't approve of. And so a few months into the case research, into case research, decided to hire a different attorney, giving him only six to seven weeks to prepare, to prepare a capital case. So this is where we are right now. In the next episode, I'll cover the trial and some of the interesting information that came up that no one knew about as well as that famous sock that was found 75 yards down from the Routier's home. I am forever grateful and thankful to all of you who continue to listen to this podcast. You are also very, very much appreciated. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to Beach House 34 whenever, wherever you get your podcasts so that you're notified when a new episode is released. Also, you can find me on Facebook at Beach House 34 or on Instagram at Beach House 34 podcast. Now, don't forget, now within the Beach House 34 bio on Instagram, you can get instant access to the most re recent episodes. So please be sure to check that out. Thank you. And we will talk with you soon.